move into our scripture reading and sermon. Today we have a very special guest, CJ. Some of you may know him. Uh, but if you don't know CJ, CJ actually founded Citizens and got us going almost 10 years ago, which is crazy. Um, yeah, really important person in the life of just this church and also just had a big impact during his almost 10 years in the city. Um, so now he lives in Phoenix with his family, and um, we're glad to have him back just for the day. Um, so yeah, you can go ahead and get us started. Do you want to start before the scripture reader? Or? Uh, no, please okay. read the scripture. Um, someone is our scripture reader. Tanya, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> our scripture reading t- for today is from John 12, 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from the heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all myself all all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Dave just gave me a, a short little passage. No big deal. Not, nothing obscure or weird there. Um, <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning. I think the first thing I need to know is how we feel about the turtleneck, though. How are we feeling about the turtleneck? My kids hate the turtleneck. Hate it. Uh, but anyway. Andy cheered for it, but wait, Carly, what do you think? What You got to weigh in. You like it? Uh, my kids don't know what they're talking about. I will cite you as a source. Um, yeah, it's, it's a gift to, to be with you guys this morning. Usually when I will preach. Oh, it's going down. Here, I'll, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you. Here, is that, is that better? Everyone's good now? Um, when I will preach at different churches, I will usually begin with Philippians 1, 3 through 5, which says, Paul is saying to the Philippian church, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'll usually say that as a way of just saying, hey, I care about your, your church and I think about you and I pray for you. Uh, but this, is, this passage and that prayer and those thoughts are more true of you than anybody. I can say truly that I think about you every day. I think about this church. I think about this city um, and just pray for you. And so love you guys so much. Um, I think one of the times of the year that I miss Citizens the most is during the story of God. I know you guys just finished out the story of God. Um, And I think about it a lot because now I've transitioned from pastoring into um, being a mental health therapist. And I talk to my clients a lot about story. I'll say to them, you have a story, and you are in a story, and the story that you have is a lot like the story that 
you are in. And I'll ask the question, what great grand story gives meaning to your life experiences? So if you don't have a meta-narrative, a big story that your small story is captured in, then you'll always struggle to find meaning in your experiences, particularly your struggles and your tragedy. I did, I've done about 600 hours now of trauma therapy over this last year. Um, and what I've learned and what I've studied is that trauma is not about the negative experiences that happen to us, but the meaning that we make out of those experiences. And I believe now more than ever that God's story is the best way to make sense out of everything that happens in our lives. It's the best story. This summer, Renee and Keen and August and I got to visit Ireland with my parents. My mom is 100% Irish. Uh, both of her uh, parents, grew, they were born and raised in San Francisco, grew up, in here, grew up here, first generation Irish immigrants to the city. And we still have relatives that live in Ireland. It's really cool. My parents actually stayed in the home that my great-grandmother grew up in, in a little town in Athlone, Ireland. It's now a bed and breakfast. And so they, like, found this place. Um, it was really cool. My mom brought this, like, book of pictures and everything and met the people that own it. It was really, really sweet. And while we were in Ireland, of course, we learned a ton about different historical realities of the country. And one of the things we learned about was this historical faction between the northern uh, Protestants, who are still part of the United Kingdom, and southern Catholic nationalists who want the island to be its own republic. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, there's this really violent period of conflict from the late 1960s to 1998 that's called the Troubles. Um, one of the most famous kind of moments or infamous moments of the Troubles is Bloody Sunday. You've probably heard that song by U2, uh, where 14 protesters were brutally murdered by British soldiers. Uh, and another story, you had 10 Irish Republic army prisoners that were willing to actually starve to death in prison in order to protest the British presence in Ireland. Um, it's really complex, really convoluted, really complicated. A, eventually, a fragile ceasefire was signed in 1998 between the two parties, and they called it the Good Friday Agreement, of all things, which took place on April, in April uh, that year on Good Friday. But it didn't entirely solve the conflict. It still goes on today. In fact, I just read an article um, from just this past December. This week, an Irish leader said, communities across the North continue to operate under the grip of paramilitary control. And trauma, whether it be from our own lived experience or intergenerational trauma that is filtered down from the conflict, remains rife and unresolved. So it's really poignant still. All week, as I just like read this passage over and over again, looked at this passage, these words from Jesus, my soul is troubled, just kept echoing in my mind. Jesus is facing his own troubles. He's entering Jerusalem during Passover for the very last time. His own heart is divided. The darkness of death looming on the horizon. And yet, he's focused and determined. His troubles were not imposed on him by the sins of generations past, like my relatives living in Athlone. Though their sins and ours were definitely the occasion for his arrival, Jesus was there of his own accord. And he came to turn trouble into glory. So as I prayed over this text, this is what I feel like I heard the Spirit say to me this week, and this is what we're going to focus on this morning in this passage. 
Jesus turns trouble into glory the way light drowns out the darkness. If we're honest with ourselves, our, our lives are wrought with trouble and filled with darkness. Jesus knows it. And so he enters personally into it. Of Christ flood into the darkest parts of our lives. The dark understand his mission. They didn't understand what he was saying, didn't understand his words, and asked that Jesus would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear and understand what he asked for us this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we come this morning as people who fail to recognize you. We often want earthly kings and world powers to solve our problems. We seek out other gods, tiny idols, to meet our needs and satisfy our deep longings, and that leads us into darkness. And so we need you this morning. We need you, Lord, and the world around us needs you too, and they need to see us, Christians, filled with your spirit, emboldened, agents of reconciliation to a traumatized and confused world. So, Lord, would you fill us up, give us what we need this morning to continue on in the work that you've called us to. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 12. We'll be starting in verse 27. Um, This is not a light passage. This is a little heavy. Um, So, you can, you can thank Dave for that. This is what he brought before me this week. I guess you guys were in John before, and then you had the holidays, and then you had the story of God. And so this is just picking up where we left off in John chapter 12. Uh, there's a lot going on in this passage. Um, Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as I mentioned before. But also, he's in a really raw emotional state. Just a few weeks before this, One of Jesus' best friend, Lazarus, dies tragically. It's a super traumatic event for Jesus, and uh, it causes him to weep uncontrollably. It's like a rare scene in the Gospels where Jesus is like really upset. And we trivialize trivialize that story because we know the end. We're like, yeah, you know, he knew the whole time he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, but it wasn't, just, it wasn't just that Jesus is weeping over the death of his friend. He's weeping about what Lazarus' death represents, right? Like for Jesus, Lazarus' death is like an up-close personal reality of the millions of other people throughout the centuries that Jesus like loves and created um, who had died and would die in the future. And so um, Jesus is holding that grief, and then now he's on the march to his own death, his own tragic death. And so that's why Jesus says, like he does in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Something I didn't realize this week, in fact, this is one of those passages where as many times as I read through John, I was like, oh, I don't remember this. You know, what's going on here? I think about this passage or this scene very often. 
Um, and this is, John is the only gospel writer that includes this passage. Um, and if you look at what's happening here, this scene parallels Jesus' uh, experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in the three synoptic gospels and not in John's gospel. And so Jesus is having a very similar conversation with the Father about his reluctance to go to the cross. But in this case, different from the Garden of Gethsemane experience, it's actually happening in public. So we don't know how many people are here, like, in the crowds, but we do know that there's an additional, like, 100,000 people that have just descended into Jerusalem for Passover, most of whom are obviously Jewish people, but there's also a bunch of Greeks there, too, um, that it, our passage mentions. And so um, there's three times in the New Testament where God the Father speaks publicly to Jesus. It happens at Jesus' baptism, then it happens at the transfiguration, and then it happens for the third time here. Um, And so it's interesting to me that John doesn't include the Gethsemane account, but he does include this account. So it seems like John intentionally places this here for us. And so we don't know entirely what that is. We'll have to kind of imagine. Um, I think one of the things might be John wanting to draw our attention to what was happening for Jesus emotionally before he ever even got to Gethsemane, right? He's saying, hey, Jesus is in a grieved state. And to be reminded that nobody is more grieved about the reality of sin and death than Jesus, our creator. Right? When we're going through the story of God, I don't know how it was this year, this year but in the years past, a lot of the wrestling that happens is like, should God have created and set this situation up this way in the first place? Like, if he knew that mankind was going to just sin and everything, there's going to be all this death and separation, like, why didn't he just leave it? Those, and I don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> right? But here's what we do know. God is grieved over it. Like, Jesus wept over it. He, he is serious about it. It strikes him to the depths of his core that any person would be separate from him, would be harmed by their sin, harmed by the sins of other people, harmed by the results of living in a tragic world. So that's one of the things happening. I think maybe the other thing that John wants to remind us of is like Jesus didn't just suffer in private, he also suffered publicly. Right? Like, I'm really good at grieving in, in private, like really privately. But I, I don't want to grieve publicly very often. Jesus did both. He was willing to like cry out to the Father in Gethsemane, please don't let this happen to me, but also publicly in front of everybody, like crowds of hundreds of thousands potentially. Jesus knows that he has come to Jerusalem for Passover, but that now he will be the Passover lamb for all eternity going forward. And he says, so he says, my soul, my soul is troubled. That word for soul is the word suke in the Greek. Um, it's where we get our word psyche. Um, I don't know if you've heard of or read any Dan Siegel. Um, he's one of the world's leading neurobiologists. And he actually provides this really amazing definition of the soul without knowing it. He's, trying to, he's actually trying to define something he calls the mind. So Dan Siegel says, the mind is separate from the material substance of the brain. 
Okay, he, I don't know if you've seen Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain, but it's like if our brain was like a hand, we have three layers, the prefrontal cortex. This is like reason and decision-making here. And then the middle part of our brain is the limbic system. This is like for our emotions and memories are kept there. And then the brain step is like the brain stem is the network that connects our brain to our bodies. So he says that our mind is the thing that uses all of this to create itself. The mind uses the brain to create itself. And he says the mind is the essence of one's being. It's the thing that makes us personal agents, right? So you read that and you're like, oh, that's cool. The Bible calls that the soul. <laughs> we know already about that. Yeah. So this is, this is Jesus in, the, in his personhood, grieving over the reality of what is going to take place. Consider the moment in your life when you felt, felt most troubled, as Jesus does here. Your own Gethsemane. A time when the anguish you felt was at a soul level. In the deep recesses of your personhood. Whatever that is, that's something like what is happening for Jesus right now. He's experiencing that. He's feeling that completely. And then he says, God Glorify your name. That's something we don't often hear together. We don't often hear deep soul level trouble and glory together. If you meet somebody who has genuine, like, suke soul level trouble, who gives God glory in the midst of that tragedy, like, get close to that person. Get to know that person. Lean in and try to understand how they got there. The reality is that God's glory is the best meaning we can give to our tragic circumstances. If we're able to give God glory in the midst of our tragedy, it keeps us from being a victim, which leads to, actually leads to disempowerment. It keeps us from thinking that we deserve something that we don't deserve, which is entitlement. And it provides us with a reason to go on, which is hope, which is something we desperately need. So Jesus is doing two things here. He is bringing theological reality to bear, but is also modeling right living and right thinking for us. And we need right thinking and right practices in order to flourish in the midst of hardship. Every hardship that we endure gives us an opportunity to either agree with or disagree with God, to align with his will and his purposes or reject it. Our response to tragedy, our response to trauma, says everything about the way we believe the world works at the depths of our core. I was thinking of an example this week, trying to think of a good example of somebody like this, and I thought of Joni Erickson Tata. Do you guys know who Joni Erickson Tata is? At the age of 17, she suffered a diving accident and left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. And despite all that, she was, she was a person that said, glorify the name of God. She said this, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing him than on my feet without him. She gets to say that. She has the credibility to say that, right? So what is our response to our own Gethsemane? Lots in the crowd either misunderstood or misheard what the Father's saying here. Look at verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. <laughs> it was just thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Remember that Jesus' audience was not looking for a suffering Messiah who would give his life as a ransom for the sins of all mankind. That was not what they were interested in at all. They actually despised that idea completely and were deeply offended by the idea that a Messiah would suffer. Okay? And so to them, this conversation happening between Jesus and the Father just sounds like clanging cymbals. It means nothing to them. Bruce Milne said this in his commentary on this passage. He said, For Jews and Greeks, the cross remains incomprehensible and repugnant. To believe that only through that blood-stained gibbet can the meaning of existence be discovered, and the life for which we were made experienced in its fullness is still widely dismissed as unacceptably narrow-minded, ethically dubious, intellectually naive, and religiously intolerant. Is that not how people view us around here? <laughs> the choice lies before the world. Jesus, however, still points the way to glorification by the narrow and only way of the cross. And so we're invited, as we look at this passage today, to ask ourselves the question, do we have ears to hear? When the Lord speaks to us, do we hear his words and understand his meaning or does it just sound like ambiguous thunder to us? Man, God is really making a lot of noise. I wonder what he wants. Right? So Jesus answers, and I, lo I really love this. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Right? I love that response because the people are having this exchange are like, Oh, Jesus is so, so sad. He's really upset. I think, I think maybe like his dad came to comfort him, to make him feel a bit better. And Jesus is like, no, dude, I am not being comforted here. None of this is for me. Like, this is for you. And he delights in that. He is glad to do that. He says, I'm here to walk in the darkness, toward the darkness, so that the darkness in your life can be flooded with my light. Remember that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. It's through my suffering that every broken part of your life can be brought into the light to be redeemed and healed and made whole. Everything that Jesus does, he does for our sake and his glory. The glory of God and the ultimate good of mankind always go together. Whether we can see that or not, that is reality. Jesus is saying that is reality. Jesus then goes on to, to provide a list of four things that his death will accomplish for our sake and his glory. In verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Okay, so he says four things. He says, on the cross, 
I will judge the world for its sin. Okay, that's, that's as unpopular today as it was then, right? Sin is the reason for every terrible reality of human existence. It is. It's why the troubles in Ireland happen. It's why the war in Ukraine is happening. It's why the war in Gaza is happening. Every broken thing that's happening began with sin, began with mankind's choice to rebel against God and say, no, I want to be the king, not you. So that's the first thing. It's like, I, I've come to judge the world. This is about judging sin. But also, it came to drive out Satan. And it's good for us to be reminded, like, we have a real enemy. Satan truly exists and hates us and wants us to suffer. He hates God. He hates mankind. He is at work. Thirdly, he said, I've come to be lifted up. So he's describing being lifted up by a cross. And his, his readers would have understood, his audience understood that. Again, that's part of why they didn't understand what's happening. It's like they knew that when he said lifting up, it meant a cross. But he's saying, I'm going to, as I rise up in death, turn death on its head. And that cross that you think is lifting me up in death is actually exalting. I will be exalted as I hang on that cross. And as a result, the fourth thing will be that that cross will draw all men to me. My kingdom will be boundless and eternal. So in this statement, Jesus is declaring himself the rightful king of the earth and all its inhabitants. Everything owes his existence to and allegiance to Jesus. And he says that, that the cross is the very thing that will bear that out and make it unquestionable. Every other king in history will be forgotten, but the name of Jesus will be exalted forever. And here we are exalting his name. I love this poem by American poet Harry Kemp. He said, I saw the conquerors riding by with cruel lips and faces wan. Musings on kingdoms sacked and burned. There rode the Mongol Genghis Khan. And Alexander, like a god, who sought to weld the world in one. And Caesar with his laurel wreath, and like a thing from hell, the hun, and leading like a star, the van, heedless of upstretched arm and groan, inscrutable Napoleon went, dreaming of empire and alone. Then they all perished from the earth as fleeting shadows from a glass, and conquering down the centuries came Christ the swordless on an ass. William Barclay said, The conquering Messiah of the Jews is a figure about whom scholars write their books, but the Prince of Love on the cross is a king who has his throne forever in human hearts. And here we are, with Jesus as the conquering king in our hearts, here to lift him up, exalt him, and pray that he might draw more people to himself. And so the crowd answers him, continuing to try to understand but failing in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. That part they get. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Again, there's no way he's going to die. Can't handle that idea. Can't be true. So Jesus tries one more thing. 
tries one more way of describing what's happening. The light is among you for a little while longer. He says, okay, let me use an illustration of light and darkness for you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is his final appeal. He said, okay, well, let's talk about how critical the light is when you're in the midst of darkness. Ever been in some space where there's no light? Maybe it's early in the morning, out in the wilderness someplace, like truly without light. It's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. I, when I was in high school, I worked at a water park in my town, and it was like a heavily wooded area, lots of hills. So it wasn't like just one of those water parks that's like in a parking lot that just goes straight up. It's like this really um, kind of heavily wooded area. And I would get there super early in the morning to open the park, and it would basically be dark out. And one of my jobs was to walk the tubes to make sure that nothing was in them which scared the crap out of me, okay? I'm like 15, 16 years old, because these they're pitch black, and I had to like walk through these like tunnels, right? And this area, I grew up, it was like an hour east of here, there would be these giant spiders that would like weave their web across the inside of the, the water tube, and I would like come around a sharp corner, and there would just be like this giant spider there, and then who, uh, who knows what else, right? Like what other critter I was going to find, you know? And so I would, I just got, at first I would go, I was going really slow. I don't know why I didn't have a flashlight. I'm, I'm realizing that now I could have. <laughs> but I'm 16, guys. It's my first job. I don't know anything. My boss should have provided me with one. He didn't. So I used to take, you know, those like, those mats that you use at the water park that you used to go down the water? So I took one of those and I would just like fold it in half and I just started running down the tube, like flapping the thing in front of me. I was like, I will clear any spider that's there and any critter will hear me coming. It was terrifying. Jesus is saying, without me, you're all running down some dark tunnel, swinging a mat like an idiot, hoping that you don't get hurt. And as you, do it, as you do that, without me, you're making a mess of your life. You're making a mess of your life. So the good news this morning is, there's good news. There's a good part. The good news is, listen, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much of a mess you've made out of your life. Jesus loves you. He was there before you were created. He knows everything about you. He delights in you so much. He came to this world to bring light to bear in your story. To redeem every broken part of your life. And that's our only choice. To receive that from him. The only way to bring meaning and glory to our troubles is for the light of Christ to, to flood every dark corner of our life. 
So you have to ask yourself the question, what room in the home of your heart is still locked shut and in darkness? What part of your life, what part of your story, what part of who you are do you just still keep hidden from the Lord in darkness? No, don't enter that room, Jesus. It could be a sin, a hidden sin, which could be an an action or it could be an attitude of the heart. It's, It's a room that you don't dare let anyone enter into, Jesus or anyone else. Jesus says, let me shine the light of salvation and grace and redemption into that room. I will flood it with life. I can resurrect that from the dead. So maybe it's hidden sin. Maybe it's some tender part of your story where you were so deeply wounded that to even name it feels far too vulnerable for you. This church is a safe place for you. There are people in this room, in this family, this church family, who will stand with you while you open that latch and allow the light of Christ to flood into the room. And I know that because they did it for me and are still doing it. When I say they're safe, I don't mean that they will pretend with you that your sin isn't sin. Or give you permission to avoid facing the hard parts of your story. I don't mean that when I say safe. I just mean that as you're willing to be honest with yourself about your sin and call it what it is, that there will be grace. And that when you open that door of trauma and tragedy, there will be mercy. Mercy and grace are two things we need the most in our lives and scarcely find. Where can you go? Where is there left to go? To find mercy and grace. To find unmerited favor in the reality of being a sinful person and mercy for the hardship that you've endured. This is it. This is the kingdom. This is where the light of Christ is. Come today and find them both in the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We need much more than a temporary agreement called Good Friday to solve our troubles. We need a permanent Good Friday. And in Christ, we have it. We have his death on Good Friday, and most importantly, we have his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Jesus turns trouble to glory the way light drowns out the darkness. Imagine our friends, neighbors, coworkers, 
family members, and even our enemies, witnessing a community of people giving God glory in the midst of tragedy and being transformed by the gospel. Imagine. This city is desperate for a community like that. So I encourage you maybe to consider this week what are some of those rooms that you need to invite a brother or sister here in this family to walk towards with you? Maybe just, you don't even have to walk them up to the door and open it. Just tell them there's a room. You don't even have to tell them what's in the room. Just say, I've got a room. I have a dark room. I'm not even ready to like tell you what's in there or walk towards it, but I want you to know that I have one. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, thank you for this, what felt like to me a little bit of an obscure passage that I didn't remember. Thank you for um, inspiring John to, to write these words and remind us of this story and, and for or preserving this story for centuries. Thank you for just the truth of your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not despair in your troubles, but that you did glorify the Father by submitting your will to his and going to the cross. Thank you for being the final Passover lamb, atoning for our sin. Thank you for forgiving us, Jesus. God, I pray that you would give me the courage to name some of these spaces that I have yet to let you come into in my own life and story. Pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would also have the courage to do so. God, thank you for Citizens Church and what you're doing in and through this body of believers in San Francisco. I pray that the work that you began here will continue for years to come. We love you, Jesus, and worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.